a wise person once said that man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but not more than one second without hope. And we all hope. We all have hopes, right? I mean, believers, unbelievers, everybody's got hope. We, we, we hope for good health. We hope for, uh, for enough money to pay our bills. We hope for peace and prosperity in our community and in our nation. But all those things that we can see and touch and feel are fading away. They're temporary. They're temporary. And let me say, there's nothing wrong for the Christian, for the believer, to hope for these things, to hope for good health, for example. But it's fading away. I remember a few years ago when my, maybe it's been more than a few years, but uh, one of my daughters was looking at my head and she said, Daddy, some of your hairs haven't come in yet. <laughs> well, well, sweetie, they've come and gone, right? Or a year ago, the, the dermatologist said, hey, you've got a cancer spot on your forehead. We're going to cut that out. So I had like a, a dozen stitches up there. My health, I'm not trying to be depressing here. I'm just being honest. My health and your health, I mean, she said she got it all. It, it's temporary. Right? I mean, it's, it's fading away. It will not last forever. Our peace and prosperity in this nation, again, I'm not trying to be depressing. I'm just being honest. It seems like it's fading away. I mean, just turn the news on. And every time you, turn, you see the news or you get online and look at, look at the news, you're like, you cringe a little bit. And I feel like I cringe more than I cringed last time I look at it and the prior time that I look at it. And each time you just cringe a little more because it's fading, it's temporary. As Christians, there's nothing wrong for us to hope for good health. There's nothing wrong for us to hope for peace and prosperity in our country. And in fact, God promises to provide the temporary things of this world for us. What did Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be given unto you. But what I want to talk about this morning is not the hope in the things that we can see and touch and feel. I'm not here to talk about this morning the hope in things that are fading away, although that's perfectly legitimate for us to hope in those things because God's going to provide for those. I want to talk about hope in God's forever things. Hope in God's eternal promises, I want to talk about our ultimate hope. It's what theologians call the eschaton. That's a Greek word that's made its way in our, into our English language, and it just means the last things. And so eschatology is two words squished together, right? It's eschaton, the last things, anology, study of. And so it's the study of the last things. Now, the last things, the last days, are when God's going to deliver. That's when God's going to deliver on his eternal promises. And the first thing, that the, 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 the study of eschatology, we're going to have um, a study of four classes. The, the sermon this morning is on the rapture. And then tonight, in the evening service, we're going to do the day of the Lord and the Great Tribulation. Next week, next Sunday night, we're going to do the Second Coming 
and Christ's golden age, the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign where Christ rules on the earth and takes the peace and prosperity and righteousness of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, and brings it to this globe and exercises his global dominion. And then the following Sunday, we're going to do the great white throne. Sunday night, we're going to do the great white throne judgment and the eternal state. But what I want to point out is that there is a timeline of events. There's a timeline of events that God's promised us, not to tickle our ears, not to, to make us say, wow. I mean, saying wow is part of it. But he gives us promises about what will happen in the future to affect how we live today so that we know that he is a God who delivers on his promises. And so he wants that to affect what our choices are today, how we live today, because we know that there is a future. The end is not what we see and touch and feel in this world today. Now, before we embark on our study, I want to talk about two words. I want to talk about the word rapture and the word hope, because those are two important words in our study this morning, in the service this morning. The word rapture comes from the passage that Pastor Bruce read us that we're going to talk about soon uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It says that we are caught up together with them in the clouds when Jesus returns, caught up. It's the Greek word harpazo. And so uh, in, in the early years of the, of the church, or at least the, uh, after, after the first couple of centuries, the church was... Uh, was, very, was influenced by Rome, and so they spoke Latin. Latin was the common language of the church for centuries. And when they looked at that Greek word harpazo, and they used Latin, they said raptudo. They came up with the Latin word raptudo to describe it. Raptudo, you can see how, it gets, how we get our English word, rapture, from raptudo. My point is, rapture even though it's not technically found in the Bible, it comes directly from the Greek word harp, uh, uh, harpazo, which means to snatch away. And so what we're going to see is that the Lord snatches us away from this earth and takes us to heaven. And we'll see more about this, where, where the word rapture came from as we go along. The second word I want to talk about is a rich, rich word that feeds us. It's the word hope. It's the Greek word, elpis. We use hope in our language differently than the Bible uses the word hope. We use it in almost, I'm going to use a real technical theological term, a squishy way, right? I mean, we use hope in a squishy way, like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, but I don't know if it's going to rain or not. I mean, I know the weatherman says this or that or the other, but I really don't know if it's going to rain. But I hope it doesn't because I just washed my car. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That's different than the way the Bible uses hope. The Bible uses the word hope for a confident expectation. We know God's going to deliver on his promise, and that colors our thinking. That affects our thinking. That gives us confidence, certainty. So when the Bible uses the word hope, it's about certainty. And hope and faith are mixed together. They're like two sides of the same coin. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 11.1. 1. 
Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what is hope? Hope is the expectation, the confident expectation in our faith that God will deliver on his promises. Because can I say that God is not a liar? Can I say that God is ready, willing, and able to perform on what he has promised us? And we're going to see these rich promises in a few minutes. In the rapture, the first event, the next event that will happen in the timeline of events of the last days. We're going to see reunion because the rapture is the rich, rich reunion of our loved ones who have passed before us, who trusted in Christ. So it's a glorious reunion. It's a glorious resurrection because in the rapture we'll be resurrected. And it's about righteousness because the rapture, God tells us about the rapture, which was a mystery in Old Testament times. They knew they were going to be resurrected. They knew that from Daniel 12. But they didn't know about the church and they didn't know about this glorious event where God would harpazo us. He would take us and catch us up, at least for the, for the generation who's alive at the, the, the rapture. They didn't, it was a mystery to the Old Testament saints. And so this is a revelation that God gives us. And on this point of righteousness, we're going to see it should impact how we live because it might happen today. Expect it today. I don't know when it's going to happen. The Bible tells us we don't know. Only the Father knows. But the Bible also tells us to expect it today, today. So that's, that's the outline of where we're going this morning. So we start with 1 Thessalonians 4, which is the, past, which is the, the passage that, that Pastor Bruce read us. And this is one of the main passages about the rapture. And before I delve into it, let me just provide a little context. The Apostle Paul was talking to the Thessalonian believers, and they were concerned. They were concerned about their loved ones who had passed away before them. What's going to happen with them? What, 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 what's going to happen with them, Paul? And so then Paul gives them this message of hope because they're suffering. They're grieving. And here's what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. You see what Paul's saying there? He's saying, grieve. I know you're grieving for your loved ones who have passed on before you grieve. It's natural. It's necessary. Do it. But I'm going to give you, Paul says, just a little sweetness to put on that bitter, painful grief. I'm going to give you a little sweetness to sprinkle on that, to soften that grief, because I'm going to tell you what the Word of God has revealed with respect to when you're going to see your loved ones again. Because you will not see them again. When you see them again, it's not going to be in a hospital bed with tubes coming out of their body. It's not going to be hanging on to life 
with your fingernails when they're lying in the bed with medication through their body. No, 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 no. It's going to be in glory and majesty and power because they will be accompanying the king of the universe. That's when you'll see them again. You will see him again, and you will see him again in majesty. So Paul tells the Thessalonian believers who are grieving, have hope, have hope. And then he goes on in verse, eight, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. It ends with in Jesus. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In Christ, in Jesus, that's a buzzword. That's a buzzword in the New Testament, meaning those who are members of the body of Christ. In other words, church age believers. The rapture is the resurrection of church age believers. It's the reunion of church age believers. And so Paul's saying, you believe that Jesus died and that he was raised from the dead. What does he say here? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. You believe that, Paul says. So know this. This resurrected Christ who is in heaven now will return. And he will bring your loved ones with him. Where's Jesus right now? He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, Colossians 3. Where are believers who have died right now? They're in heaven, 2 Corinthians 5. They're both in heaven. So when Jesus returns, he is bringing them with him. Then we read in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, this isn't my opinion. I'm not making this up, Paul says. This is the absolute, definitive, undeniable word of God. And so he announces this to them. He wants them to have the certainty that this is not made up, bogus stuff. This is real revelation from the Word of God. And as, I, as we'll see in a minute, it was a mystery, as I said earlier, to the Old Testament saints. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, remember that word we, we're going to come back to that in a minute. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul's saying there's a reunion, and this reunion is going to be glorious. It's going to be beyond any reunion we've ever thought of. The end times are beyond what we can think or imagine. What God will do in delivering on his promises will be awesome. Now, when I say awesome, I don't mean the way I use the word kind of loosely, right? When the Aggies are going to win a football game. Awesome! Or I open the freezer and there's still bluebell ice cream in there. Awesome! I don't mean awesome like that when I'm talking about the end days. I mean jaw-dropping awesome beyond what we can imagine or think because God delivers. God delivers on his promises. So this passage tells us, number one, verse 15, number one, that this is the revelation of God. And number two, there's going to be this great reunion. 
That's the reunion. Let me talk about the resurrection. The resurrection is also part of the rapture of the church. Resurrection, we have eternal life, right? And Jesus promised that in John 10, John 11. It's promised throughout the New Testament. Remember in John 11, Jesus said, even if you die, you will live. Eternal life, part of eternal life is the resurrection because this body with its cancer spot that was taken out and this, you know, I got an age spot here. I'm like, what, what, what is that? Where did that come from? But this body, which is infected, I have an infection. I have an infection. You know what it is? It's a virus. It's the sin virus. And it infects every part of me. And it infects every part of y'all, too. It infects, we are all infected by the sin virus. And the product of sin is death. That's why we physically die. It's pain. It's suffering. And so God, in delivering on his promise, you know what he does? He says, I'm going to fix your virus. That body that is infected with sin, I'm going to give you a new one that is a body of righteousness that has no sin. And because it has no sin, it has no death, the resurrection body. It has no pain, the resurrection body. It has no suffering, the resurrection body. So that is part of our eternal life. It is a new body. This flesh and these bones will be remade fit for heaven, fit for eternity. Now, to be clear, there are two resurrections. What I mean by that is, I've been talking about believers who are resurrected. There are also unbelievers who are resurrected. But this is a resurrection to horror, not to life. And this was back in the Old Testament. Old Testament believers understood that there was a resurrection. This is Daniel 12:2, which reads, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, believers, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So believers will be resurrected to life. Unbelievers will be resurrected also in Revelation 20, but they will be resurrected to eternal separation from God because fellowship with God is life. Separation from God is death. And so unbelievers are resurrected to eternal separation from God. But it's not just separation. It's the lake of fire. It's eternal punishment. And that is totally, totally avoidable. It's totally avoidable. If, there, if there's anybody here today who's a non-believer who has not trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you're in this category of resurrection to death. Resurrection to condemnation, resurrection to damnation for eternity, as, as described in Revelation 20 and as described here in Daniel 12. But in an instant of time, you can go from resurrection to death to resurrection to life just by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You go from being the enemy of God to being his daughter or his son, to being the child of God. And if there's anybody here without Christ, without hope, or without eternal life, we'd urge you to do that. In an instant of time, you become the child of God, and you, you are in the resurrection of life versus the resurrection of death. Back to our passage, 1 Thessalonians 
Paul says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we, we, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. This we word is real interesting to me. Paul's saying that he expects he could be in the rapture, that his generation could be the rapture generation. He's not looking for some other event to happen first. He expects that he, his generation, could be the rapture generation that is caught up together within the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He doesn't know, but he expects. And so because of this, we start to see what's known as the imminency of the rapture. It's imminent in the sense it can happen at any time. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines imminent as something that's ready to take place or something that's happening soon. Paul says in Titus 2.13 that we should be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Let me just take a detour for a minute. That ends with our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. God is not just some dude who walked the land of Canaan and put little pearls of wisdom here or there. He's the creator of the universe. He's fully God and fully man. And so Paul says, we're looking for the blessed hope. And what's the blessed hope? He goes on to say, the appearing of Jesus. That's what we're looking for. We're not looking for the appearing of the Antichrist. We're not looking for the judgments, the fierce judgments of God in the tribulation. We're looking for the appearing of Jesus. That's the next event on God's timeline of prophetic events. Jesus put it this way in Revelation 3 and in Revelation 22. He says, I am coming quickly. He says, I am coming quickly. In other words, I'm coming unannounced. Like that. J. Vernon McGee gave a story about this in his book, Through the Bible. The point of Jesus' statement about I'm coming quickly is be ready. Be ready. And so McGee gives a story about readiness in his book. It's a story about a gardener. A gardener who tended the gardens at this beautiful castle, this estate in northern Italy. And he kept the gardens immaculate, sharp, beautiful. And one day a visitor came to visit. And he's talking with a gardener and he says, wow, man, these, the gardens look amazing. And later that day they're having lunch, the gardener with his wife and the visitor. And the visitor says, I, I'm, I'm curious, when was the last time the owner of the castle was here. And the gardener says, well, you know, about, about 10 years ago. So the visitor says, well, well, why do you keep the garden so immaculate? Why do you put so much effort into it? And the gardener says, because I expect him to return. And the visitor says, well, when's he coming? Next week? And the gardener says, I don't know when he's coming, but I expect him today. What was McGee's point in telling the story? McGee's point was, be ready. Be ready. Are you ready? Am I ready for the Lord to show up in 
Five minutes? I don't know if he's going to be here in five minutes or not. But we need to be ready. If we're an unbeliever, we're not ready. We need to accept Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. If we're believers and we're just la, 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 just drifting along the, the ocean of the world that, that takes us from this appetite to this appetite to this desire to this desire, we're going to be raptured. All believers, you can't lose your salvation, but you're going to miss out on a life that is of meaning, that is eternal significance if you're not following the Lord. And so if you're an unbeliever and you're not following the Lord, the way you get ready, even though you're going to be in the rapture, the way you get ready is submit to him, seek him, follow him, not your own appetites. Now let me say this. The world thinks that the idea of the return of Christ is utterly ridiculous. I mean, just, just Google rapture and mock, and you'll find multiple news outlets. I won't name them. You can probably think of them yourselves. You'll find multiple news outlets with opinion pieces mocking Christianity for the idea that, that we think Jesus will return. But that's actually, th that mocking and that argument is actually not that creative because it's been happening for thousands of years. The apostle Peter dealt with it in 2 Peter himself. Here's what the apostle Peter says. First, he describes their argument, the argument of the mockers, and then he responds to it. In 2 Peter 3, verses 4 and 9, Peter describes the argument of the mockers. He says, where is the promise of his coming, of Jesus' coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What Peter's saying is what the mockers argue is, come on, really? Really? Do you believe that the Lord is coming in some splendor, majestic way, like you say, believers? Really? He ain't showed up ever. He's never showed up. And so since he hadn't shown up, why do you think he's going to show up now? That's the argument of the mockers today and 2,000 years ago with the apostle Peter. So then Peter responds in verse 8. He responds to the mockers by saying, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one, thousand, one day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like one day. With the infinite, eternal God, time is quite different than it is for we finite beings. An infinite, eternal God has a vantage point with respect to time and a perspective with respect to time that's very different from our perspective. For us, a thousand years, we're like, whoa, that's a huge amount of time. But for God, who's eternal and infinite, it's like a day. And a day is like a thousand years. And then Peter gets to his real point in verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See what Peter's saying there? He's saying, God is patient. And in his patience, he gives more time, more time to submit to him, more time to repent. 
they come and they crucify his son. What does God do? He gives patience. In patience, he gives more time to submit. They come and they persecute the children of the believers who have the audacity, the audacity to declare that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And what do people do in some areas of the world? They kill them. They murder these Christians. And what does God do in response? More time. More patience. In his mercy, God gives more patience and more patience and more time to repent and more time and more time and more time. And so what does the world do in response? They mock God. They mock God's patience. They mock his mercy. And they say, he's never coming. We got no accountability here, baby. Live it up. That's the world's message. That's the world's message. But God says, a time will come. One time, a time will come one day when I will turn my spigot of patience and mercy and compassion off. And I will turn on my spigot of wrath and judgment, which we'll see tonight is quite horrific because he's not just a God of mercy and love and compassion who sacrifices his son for us. He's not just that God. He's also the God of wrath who imposes fierce judgment on his enemies. Now, no one wants to talk about that part of God, but it's all one God. He's not just love. He's also righteousness. He's not just mercy. He's also judgment. And so one day, there will be a day of accountability. But this morning, we're talking about the rapture. The rapture is a day, a glorious day of reunion and resurrection. Back to our passage in 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, that we see in Christ again. Before we saw in Jesus, now we see in Christ. Paul's point is, these are believers church-age believers who are involved in the rapture. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's an order. There's an order to the resurrection. God is not a God of chaos. He's not a God of disorder. Stuff doesn't just happen willy-nilly. God is a God of extreme precision. So there's an order to the resurrection. The first part of the resurrection was when Jesus was resurrected on the third day after he was crucified. The next part of the resurrection is the rapture of the church. And even within the rapture of the church, there are phases of the resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive are second. Those are the two phases of the resurrection of the church. Now, what happens in the resurrection is that we are transformed we're transformed. This is the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. This caught up phrase is where we get the word rapture, as I mentioned earlier. Earlier, It's a Greek word harpazo, which means to snatch something away. Then got translated into Latin, rapturo. And you can see easily how that turns into our English word, rapture. But in the rapture, we're going to get new flesh and new bones. And Paul unpacks this for us in 1 Corinthians 15. He'll first talk about 
things we've already heard from 1 Thessalonians 14 about, or 4, how it lays out, and then he's going to tell us something new, the transformation of our bodies. So let's read this, 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Old Testament saints didn't know about the rapture of the church. We will not all sleep. In other words, we're not all going to pass away. Notice his we word. He says we many, many times here. In other words, he thinks the rapture might happen in his generation. He expects it then, even though he doesn't know for certain. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. We're all going to be resurrected. Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Didn't we hear trumpet before in 1 Thessalonians 14? This is the trumpet of God that Paul was talking about there. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. There's the order again. The dead are going to be raised imperishable and then we who are alive will be changed. Verse 53. For this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable has put on the imperishable and this mortal has put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, God knows how to mock too. God knows how to mock also, but when he mocks, it's legit. You know who's mocking here? He's mocking our enemy. The Bible says our last enemy is death. And God, because he loves his children, defeats the enemy of his children, and then he mocks the enemy of his children. He mocks death because it's our enemy, and he loves us. And so why can, we, why can he mock death? Because he's defeated it through the death of his son, Christ, through which we are transformed from sinners into those who have eternal life, through which this body of corruption, this one, will be transformed into a body of immortality and praise God for that. Finally, the Apostle Paul ends with, therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's just like Jesus said in John 14. John 14, 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Believe, all, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And then here, here comes the rapture, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said those as words of comfort to his disciples because the next day he was going to be crucified. He was comforting them. Paul likewise comforts us with the words of the rapture like Jesus comforted his disciples with the words of the rapture. But what's interesting about the word comfort in the Greek, it's the Greek word parakaleo. What's interesting is that that Greek word can mean comfort or it can mean encouragement. It can mean either one. It can mean both. And so Paul and Jesus are comforting us, but they're also encouraging us. They're comforting us that our loved ones, we will see them again, and when we see them again, it will be in majesty, not in some hospital bed. When we see them again, it will be in glory. And that's a source of comfort, because we know we're going to be, we will see them again, and there will be a glorious reunion and resurrection. But it's also a source of encouragement to encourage us to live 
a particular way to live righteously, righteously, because these events, knowing that the rapture is coming, well, it didn't come in five minutes, right? Maybe it's in another 35 minutes. We don't know when, but knowing it changes our attitude. If we know that accountability is right around the corner, it changes the way we live. It changes our priorities. Longing for Christ changes our priorities. It influences our choices. Paul put it this way in Titus 2, verses 11 and 3. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Because that's, that's what the world's selling, right? Ungodliness and worldly desires. You got all these appetites, and the world is happy to feed them and feed them and feed them. And God says, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What's the present age? It's the age where we're waiting, we're waiting for the king to return. The king's in heaven right now, but he's coming. And so the current age is waiting for him to return. It's the church age, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope we saw this part of the verse earlier. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. This verse that I just put on the screen is 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. And let me just step back for a minute before we, we go through this verse. The Thessalonians that, that, that were worried about their loved ones and that Paul was given the message of the rapture to, these guys were a mess before they came to Christ. I mean, these guys were idol worshipers. But when they came to Christ, and when they realized, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait a second. Christ is coming. And I should expect it any day. That changed them. And so they had a reputation of being changed by that reality, their priorities having changed. And so Paul says, your reputation in this verse, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, your reputation is that you turn to God from idols to serve. The, word, the world hates that word, serve. Serve. I ain't serving nobody. Serve? You ain't the boss of me. Serve? But what are we to do? We're to be servants, servants of the God who is. So Paul says, your reputation is that you turn to God from idols to serve a living, a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. What caused them to, to go from idol worshipers to servants of the living God? Waiting, realizing, expecting, eagerly expecting his son to return from heaven. That's what transformed these pagans. The Apostle John says something very similar in John 1, 3. He said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. In other words, we haven't been resurrected yet. We know that when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him. We'll, be res we'll have resurrection bodies just like him. The only difference between Jesus' resurrection and ours 
as he was first. But we're going to have a body just like his, just like his. And we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope, there's that word again, hope. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Paul's point is, if we have the confident expectation, if we recall to mind that Jesus is coming, we should be thinking about that. And if we do, it's going to color our priorities. It's going to color our choices. Charles Ryrie, in 1948, said something very insightful about this. What he did there is he said, wait a second. The church, this is 1948, he observed that the church lacked purity. And he said, the reason they lack purity is because they're not really interested. They're disinterested in the imminent return of Christ. Here's how he said it. Concerning the future, it seems that the Thessalonians, these are the verses we've just been looking at, knew that they were waiting for a person. They were waiting for Jesus. Their attitude of waiting was one of eager expectancy. What a contrast to the teaching concerning the second coming in many quarters today. It's 1958. Can you imagine the year 2018? And yet how essential is it that believers be in the attitude of waiting up for the Lord Jesus? This is a purifying hope, and it seems reasonable to believe that the church today has lost her purity because she has lost her hope of the soon coming of the Lord. There's a connection there. There is a connection there between expecting the Lord any day and living righteously, living in purity. We don't study eschatology because we want our ears tickled. We study the last days because it affects how we live today. It impacts our piety, our purity, not in a self-righteous way, right? I mean, we're to be righteous, not self-righteous, because we don't have boo to be proud of in ourselves. We're to be righteous, not self-righteous, but to be righteous in terms of righteous decisions. God said, I am holy, so you will be holy. So that impacts, knowing that Christ will return, impacts our decisions. It impacts our priorities. The last thing I'd like to talk about today is rewards, because that is something that will happen in the last days. The last days do include rewards. It's kind of like the Sunday school teacher who was teaching her Sunday school class about the, ju the judgment seat of Christ, which is where believers will be, and believers will be evaluated. Their lives will be evaluated there. And she was teaching the kids about the crowns of glory that will be given. And so she says, well, guess who's going to get the biggest crowns? And there's silence in the room. And then little Joey pipes up. He says, well, in, in classic kid logic, the ones with the biggest heads, right? I mean, the ones with the biggest heads are going to get the biggest crowns, right? Well, that, that is not God's analysis at the, at the final, at the at the judgment seat of Christ, right? No, his analysis is about our good works. Works are not a means of salvation. Our works are dead works when it comes to salvation. There's only one work that counts in terms of our access to God, our access to heaven. 
our access to eternal life, and that is the work of Christ on the cross. That's salvation. But after salvation, now what? We're supposed to be living for Christ. And so the Bible says, do good works. You're saved for good works, Ephesians 2.10, which have already been created for us by God. Not for salvation, because salvation can only be accomplished through the work of Christ, not our own works. But our daily choices, whether we live with righteous choices or we feed our appetites, I'm looking out for this guy, right? Is, is, is that our attitude or is it how do I serve the Lord and the Lord's people? If that's our attitude, then our actions just follow our attitude of service and those are good works. As long as we are seeking God's glory and doing his will, which we can't know if we don't study his word, then we're doing good works. And so at the judgment seat of Christ, which happens after the rapture, we are rewarded for our good works. And the Bible talks about crowns. And I believe what's associated with crowns, crowns were, were a big deal in the ancient in the, in the ancient Roman and Greek cultures. And so Olympians, they would go and compete and they'd come home and if they won the, the, the race, they'd be given a crown. But what came along with those crowns were benefits. They, they wouldn't have to pay taxes in Athens or, they wouldn't, or they'd have free food for lifetime at the banquet hall in Thessalonica or wherever it was. And so there were benefits that came along with the crowns. So we don't have time to get into the details of the crowns, but let me at least talk about the third crown there, the crown of righteousness for longing for Christ's return, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 4.8. That's what we've been talking about all morning, right? Longing for the return of Christ. Why do we get a crown for that? Because if you're longing for the return of Christ, that impacts your choices. That impacts your priorities. That impacts your motivation. Is it motivation about how do I feed my appetites? Or is it motivation of how do I serve the king who's coming any day? There is the crown of righteousness, and that is for the longing for Christ's return. There is a glorious reunion and resurrection that is coming. It's coming because God has promised us that it's coming. And that should influence our choices. We should be like the gardener, the gardener who doesn't know when the owner's coming, but he expects it today, today, maybe. Well, thanks, Alex, for that very challenging message. I appreciate it. The Romans worshiped their ancestors. They would make masks of them, they would put them up on the mantle, they would worship them in that way. We don't worship our ancestors, but we remember those who have gone before us. In the last six weeks, I've done four memorial services for dear friends, and we don't want to forget them. There are people that are worthy of remembering. We all have them. The old tune, Old Lang Syne, loosely translated means, oh, long ago. And it's, uh, it's something we do each year at this time, the last Sunday morning service of the year. We sing Old Lang Syne in remembrance of those who have gone before us. So please, let's now stand, and we'll end the year this way.
thank you for this time together. We ask that you give us the sprinkling of hope as the grief that we have for our loved ones that have passed before us still there and it still hurts. So we ask that you sprinkle us, sprinkle that grief with hope, soften that grief by reminding us that we will see them soon, any day, in the great reunion and resurrection that you will declare with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God with great glory and majesty. And so we ask that you remind us of that and you challenge us to live in light of that. And we pray these things in the name of his majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will give all the praise and the glory to you. Amen.